Okay, while everybody's finding their seat, we're going to have, we've got a couple of announcements. First of all, to remind everyone that this Saturday at 3 p.m. we will be having the Celebration of Life Memorial Service for uh, Betty Smith and then a reception following at 4 o'clock. Then also a week from Saturday, which will be the 15th, I think, Greg, is that right? De- when do we have deacons meeting? Fifteenth, Okay, so we'll be having the men's prayer breakfast on the 15th. So we will be getting back in order. We have not had that in a couple of months, so that will be uh, back in order. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we need to have a few moments of silent prayer, just so we can make sure that we are spiritually prepared Uh, to study this evening, if necessary, that includes confession of sin, and then I will open in prayer. So let's bow our heads together. Our Father, we're thankful for the fact that we can come together tonight to be refreshed by a study of your word, to be reminded of the issues in our lives that have eternal consequences, and the importance of trusting you consistently through our lives, walking closely with you as we uh, pursue spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. Father, we pray for our nation. We are in such turmoil. There are so many problems You know all of them, and you've been aware of them since their inception, and it all boils down to people turning their backs on you, turning their backs on the Word of God, and going their own way, much like the time of the judges. And Father, we pray that you would send men and women to lead this country. We pray that this country can have peace and stability that will not follow in the path of things that are happening in England or in Canada where pastors are being arrested, where churches are being locked down by the government, and where arrests, at any, uh, inc- which include any means, uh, arrest warrants, which include any means, are, are being sent out. And, Father, we know that, that that is exactly what the devil wants. Satan wants to destroy the freedom that we have in this nation in our First Amendment. And, Father, we pray that for this country that we might have men and women, especially those who are devoted to the truth of Scripture, uh, 
that can lead this nation. And we need evangelists in this nation who are proclaiming the gospel to people day in and day out. Only then can we see a real transformation in this nation. And we pray that you would provide that. We thank you that we can study your word tonight and pray that as we open it, we will be edified and strengthened. In Christ's name, amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to uh, Judges. We're still in Judges chapter 2, and we will, uh, I'm going to adjourn Bible class a little bit early, probably around uh, 8.20 tonight. We have a uh, guest speaker who's going to come up. All right, let's uh, remind ourselves of what we're going through in the Judges, and this is uh, time, I did not change the title slide, so I will do that. But the uh, t- title of this uh, de- deals with the fact that, that God is uh, being ignored and abandoned by Israel. And so God is going to bring them under divine discipline. And so they are going through testing for discipline. But there is also... When we're walking with the Lord, testing for spiritual growth. So that is what we're beginning tonight. We're not going to get into it. I had, after I got finished today, putting together the message related to that, I went back, saw where we were in context, add to add more, and discovered that we will get to the uh, testing part next Tuesday night. That's what happens. So... We are looking at this, at the judges. We're looking at the introductory part, which gives us a summary of what we're going to see in the course of the book. And what we see is that this shows how Israel went from a nation that was trusting God and had spiritual victory uh, in their lives as believers and had victory over their physical enemies, the Canaanites, as long as they trusted God. But then when they began to be influenced by the culture because they were disobeying God in terms of not carrying out his commands to completely annihilate uh, the evil Canaanite culture, then they began to be influenced by that culture just as God had warned, and things went from bad to worse. So their incomplete obedience led to compromise, which led to failure, and the cycles of discipline that make up the book. So that's the summary. The main part of the book we'll get to probably in two or three weeks, starting with the first judge, Othniel, uh, uh, beginning in 3.7, where we see how the leadership becomes paganized, and then the examples of the paganization of the priests and the people in the the, uh, last five chapters. So this is our focus tonight. So I want to go back and just pick up a little bit of what we've already covered, but go back to verse 11 of chapter 2 and begin to look at this description. Because beginning in 2.11, down through the end of the chapter, what we see is a summary of what's going to happen in the rest of the book, especially in the core, uh, uh, the core chapters from chapter uh, three through chapter uh, uh, sixteen, and and uh, Samson. So it starts off verse eleven. 
Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served, or as I've been translating it, they enslaved themselves to the Baals. And there's a reason that I'm choosing that as a terminology because the word for serve is the same word that is a form of the root word that is used for slavery. But then when we look at what God is going to do with them in terms of discipline, and we get down to uh, verse uh, 17 and 18, then we're going to see how God is going to sell them into their their captivity and it's the same language that's used for slavery so god is going to cause them to be enslaved by their enemies because they have chosen to enslave themselves by their idolatry and sin always enslaves us and that's how i started last the last class remember going through romans chapter 6 that we are born spiritually dead and we are enslaved to our sin nature. So we're born in a state of slavery. We stay in a state of slavery unless we trust Christ as Savior, reminding us of Galatians 5.1 that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And that, while that is not talking about political freedom, it is talking about the core issue, which is spiritual freedom, freedom from the dominion of our sin nature. And when we let the sin nature have its way with us, then we turn our backs on God in one way or another. In the Old Testament, it's a very graphic, physical way as they are, instead of worshiping God at the tabernacle in Shiloh, they are going to go to the various uh, altars for the Baal and the Ashtoreth in in, in the high places. So we looked last time at the fact that this is the word Baalim. There are many different Baals, and they have, they would have local Baals, and they would have major, major centers. But the purpose of the worship of the Canaanite gods and most of the gods in the ancient world, whether you're you're talking about uh, Syria or whether you're talking about Babylon or Egypt or later Greece or Rome, uh, revolved around the whole idea of of uh, fertility, the idea of prosperity, really. And so they appeal to people at their most base desires and lusts, and they promised uh, agricultural prosperity, fertility, that they would have a, an abundance of crops, and therefore that would make them comfortable, provide for all their needs, and give them material wealth. Also, that uh, uh, they would have abundant offspring, many children, and to help with the work in the farms because ev- nearly everybody's operating at an agricultural uh, level and also for national security. And it's important to remember that, and I'll point this out as we go along, because they're, what they hoped to get from abandoning God and turning to the the uh, pr- uh, fertility gods and goddesses was exactly what God took away from them. And that's often how God will bring discipline 
in the lives of individuals and especially in the lives of, of a nation. That, that when God brings discipline, he takes away exactly what they think they're going to gain by pursuing an alternate worldview, an alternate God, an alternate way of life. So um, that is the essence of evil. It is to worship something other than the true creator of all things because that is the root of all problems is disobedience to God, turning away from God. That's exactly how things got started in the Garden of Eden because Eve is in the garden and she is uh, tempted by the serpent to eat the fruit. And so the offer is that uh, if you eat the fruit, you'll become like God. And see, it's always one or the other. You always have this option. Am I going to obey the God of the Bible, the creator of the universe, or, I'm go- or am I going to set someone or something else up as a higher authority? And ultimately, it's, it's us. We, we, we make ourselves into God. So in a sense, what Satan was offering was something that was true. You will become like God. You will make yourself into a God by taking the authority away from the Creator and taking it upon yourself. So they will enslave themselves to the Baals, and they abandoned Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. So the God who had redeemed them is the God that they are abandoning. And they've seen so much, because when you read that phrase, we think of all of the miracles. We think of the miracles that occurred in the um, in the Exodus event, and all of the things that they saw from the water being turned uh, into blood to the flies and the gnats and uh, the boils and everything else, the locusts and all the things that took place up to the death of the firstborn. And they witnessed all of that on God's command. All of those things happened. Then they left, then they, uh, God parts the waters of the Red Sea. They go into the desert and they witness God providing every single day for them with the manna, providing water for them miraculously keeping their clothes and their shoes together so that nothing falls apart for 40 years. And yet, as soon as they get into the land, they just forget about it. And we wonder why that is. How could they have seen all of that? And it goes back to that that basic point that is made in the story of Lazarus and the rich man that when Lazarus the beggar has died, the rich man dies, rich man is begging Father Abraham to let, uh, let, uh, the rich, the, let Lazarus come over and touch his finger in the water and put it on his tongue and cool him off. And if not that, then just let him go back to life so that he can tell my brothers and warn them. And uh, Abraham says that they don't believe in, the, in Moses and the prophets. They're not going to believe somebody who returned from the dead. So just because people have seen all these miracles doesn't mean they're going to believe in God or believe in Christ. Look at all the miracles that he performed. And yet so many, the nation turned their back on him, refused to accept him. And he came, John says, to his own and his own received him not. But there was a large group that did. 
receive him. And that became the, the nucleus for that new entity that God brought into, into being the church. So these Israelites just follow that pattern. They turn from God. It's the, it's the evil of sin, the corruption of sin that's in every single one of us, that, that desire to be independent from God. But God has given us so many resources uh, be by the indwelling of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, the indwelling of Christ, the Word of God, all of these things, God the Holy Spirit who strengthens us, but people fail to respond. They put their lives, their priorities, their lusts, all before learning the Word. So they abandoned Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They followed other demonic gods. I'm paraphrasing this. Because remember, in Deuteronomy, there's the warning that when they are bowing down to these idols, they are worshiping demons. They are sacrificing to demons. So I'm bringing that out by the way I'm translating this. They're not just following other gods. They're not just bowing down to idols. They are indeed worshiping the demons that are behind those gods. And when we are worshiping any worldview that is not the Judeo-Christian biblical worldview, then we're in that same kind of idolatry. And that's the danger that our country and, and much of the world today uh, sees. And these worldviews can be more overt in the form of various religions. Uh, you have the religions related to Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, many, many other philosophies, and historically, there have been these philosophies like Gnosticism and all of these things, and they still rear their ugly heads today in one form or another. So they worshipped other gods, these demonic gods, and um, the demonic gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked Yahweh to anger, and they abandoned Yahweh and served the Baals, and the Asherah. So uh, Baal is the Canaanite storm god. He is the fertility god. And the Asherah is a term related to Astarte. It is in the plural, just as Baalim is in the plural. And this refers to all of these Ashtar idols that were so attractive uh, to the people. Verse 12 says that they provoked Yahweh to anger. Now, this idea of God's anger is a very interesting and very controversial uh, issue because it relates to a question, does God have emotion? Does God lose his temper? Does God just get really, really, really mad and angry at everybody? Or is this an idiom? And a lot of people think that if we think, think of it not as talking about God having emotion, then somehow we're taking something away from God. But we have to think about certain things. First of all, the English word emotion does not appear in the English language until the mid-1700s. It's a late concept. You're not going to find the word emotion in the Bible. There's no such word as emotion in either Hebrew or Greek. 
what you have is various things that we identify as emotional feelings are communicated through idioms. They're communicated through figures of speech so that when in the New Testament it talks about it, it, it talks about mercy or compassion. It, it's literally talking about uh, your bowels. And, if, and, and other figures of speech will talk about use of the kidneys. And so that the emotions that we think of as emotions, these are tied to different uh, bodily parts or organs because these are areas that get stimulated if we let those emotions get out of control. And it seems to suggest, as I believe, that emotions are centered not in the soul but in the body. And it's, it's all part of the corruption that we have to deal with, with the sin nature being in the body. And uh, so the first issue is this concept of emotion is one that is radically distorted. It comes into the language in the 1700s. It is perverted and abused by Sigmund Freud and becomes part of a a whole system of thinking within his psychological framework, which is not grounded at all in anything biblical. He he hated uh, the Bible. He hated Judaism. He hated biblical Christianity. And he was offering a totally different way of looking at life, looking at life's problems and solving problems. And they didn't have anything to do with the categories the Bible talks about, which are sin, forgiveness, guilt, forgiveness, redemption, that none of that applies. And so uh, we have to recognize that. And uh, third thing is that the figure of speech that are used is this figure that I'll uh, describe in a minute, define in a minute, either anthropomorphisms or anthropopathisms. Now, this phrase that is used here, kaos, one word in the Greek is translated as they provoked to anger. That's how that one word is translated. And it has the idea of being vexed or being indignant, angry, wroth, to be grieved or provoked to anger and wrath. That's how it is translated. But uh, what is interesting is, and I got these slides out of order, is in the theological word book of the Old Testament, which is a, sort of an expanded lexicon with the different definitions, short articles explaining more about uh, each word. The writer of the article on Kaas states this term, as well as the synonyms for anger and wrath, burning, having your nose burning, all of those that I've talked about in the past, he says these are used anthropomorphically and anthropopathically. That means they are not to be understood literally. They are figure of speech. They're an idiom. And we have to understand that. As soon as you do that, there are people who think, oh, you're depersonalizing God because we live in such an emotion-laden culture that they define humanness as emotion. Now, if you go back to not too far in history, maybe a couple of hundred years, emotion would not have even been a category when you talked about human beings. It would talk about intellect and will 
and that would be your 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 key explanations of what the image of God consisted in. And so we look at um, these terms, uh, anthropomorphism and anthropopathism. Now, I always like to start with the word anthropomorphism. It's easy for us to understand that. It's a little more difficult for a lot of folks to understand the second definition of anthropopathism. An anthropomorphism the first part of that word is, and I misspelled it, anthropo. There should be an O between the P and the M. Uh, anthropo comes from anthropos, which means human, man. And morph has to do with a form. So this is assigning to God a human body part that God doesn't actually possess. You have statements in the Scripture, the eyes of God going to and fro throughout the whole earth, or the ears of God, or the arm of God, the hand of God, the finger of God. Uh, these are human uh, body parts that God does not actually possess. We also have uh, phrases that are called zoomorphism. And that's when an animal's body part is assigned to God. That there, the verse that talks about being under the wings of God, under the everlasting wings. God does not have wings. But that's an image that relates to a, a bird, a, for example, a mother hen or another kind of bird that uh, spreads her wings so that her young can come under this and be protected. And so it's an image for communicating protection. It's not a statement that God has wings any more than it's a statement that God has an eye, ear, nose, finger, arm, or any other body part. So these are communicated for the purpose of expressing something to us in terms of a frame of reference that we have so that we can understand something about God's uh, purposes, God's plans, and there's no uh, literal frame of reference for it whatsoever. So we take that definition for an anthropomorphism, and now we, we can kind of work with that and realize that maybe that's not something that's so strange. And then we look at the term anthropopathism. And an anthropopathism is where you assign a human emotion to God. Just as you assign a human body part to God in an anthropomorphism that God doesn't actually possess, you're assigning to God a human emotion that God does not actually possess in order to express something about God's purposes and plans or his, his nature to finite human beings who can't un understand that. And so people say, well, what about these words like compassion and love? God is love. Yes, but unless you're going to take the theological definitions from that great man Webster and his dictionary, then you're going to be, um, uh, if you're doing that, you're going to be led down a false path because he defines love as emotion, but the Bible doesn't define love as emotion. It defines love in terms of certain categories, 
and certain actions, but it's a mindset. It's not a feeling because feelings come and go. Anybody who's been married more than more than a few years knows that sometimes you feel very romantic and you feel very much in love, and other times you don't. And yet, love is something that is to be consistent. It's based on a mindset, a mental attitude, and so we God loves us, and that's not a feeling. He doesn't get all warm and fuzzy when he looks at the human race and decided, oh, they're just so cute and cuddly, I'm going to send my son to die for their sins. That's not the image that's there whatsoever. So uh, all of these things that we think of as emotion, it's just our little self-absorbed sin nature telling us that God has to be like us, but we were created to be like him, but that image was corrupted because of sin, and so that corrupts every part of us, including and especially those emotions. Now, that doesn't mean that emotions are bad, okay? Some people get that idea. That just means that, that, that that's not your point of reference. That's not how you understand God. That is not how you are to understand the things that are going on in life, and that is not how you are to make decisions. So many people in our culture, because we're so subjective, we're so self-absorbed, that we want to make all of our decisions on the basis of how it makes us feel. And that just leads to just all kinds of horrible, horrible decisions. And the most extreme form of that is expressed through mysticism, and you have extreme mysticism, and you also have light mysticism. And a lot of Christians are into light mysticism. And they just think that, oh, isn't it wonderful? I just pray about something, and I have this feeling. And so I know it's the right decision, or I don't have that feeling, and I know it's the wrong decision. But that doesn't have anything to do with making a good decision. You make a good decision because you understand the Word of God, and it has shaped the way you think and analyze the issues of life, and you can apply the Word of God to your situation, and you can, you've memorized and internalized promises so that you can apply those and mix them with faith. It has nothing to do with how we, how we feel. Some days you might wake up and you just feel on top of the world. Everything's coming together for you, all your bodily chemical functions are all in place and you bound out of bed. Now some of you are thinking, I never bound out of bed. But maybe after you've had your first two or three cups of coffee and the sun gets up to about noon, then you're bounding. But uh, other days you just wake up and you don't feel so good and you're low on energy and sometimes you're just dragging through the entire day waiting till you can get back into bed and try to recover what you didn't get for sleep the night before. And but So these emotions that we have fluctuate all the time, and we have to make decisions on the basis of principle, not on the basis of feeling. You have to make all kinds of decisions that way, decisions on how you spend your money. Too many people spend their money on the basis of, of feeling, and they get in trouble, and they get into debt, and they don't sit down and objectively analyze the numbers. Or they go to vote, and they make their decision based on how somebody looks or how it makes them feel or uh, how they dress, all kinds of things like that, and that's called ad hominem. It has nothing to do with truth. 
Uh, I don't, when I go to a doctor, I don't care what he looks like. I don't care if he has a horrible bedside manner. I don't care if he's short, fat, dumpy, grumpy, or what he is, as long as he has the skills and the objectivity to treat whatever condition I have so that I, I recover from it. That's what I'm looking for is somebody who has the right information and the right skills to handle the situation, and I don't care what they look like. I don't care what kind of personality they have. And so when we make decisions on those superficial things, we're always going to make really, really bad decisions. We have to base it on, on, on facts. So human emotion is not what's going on here. Rather, what is going on here is this kind of language that God's nose burned is talking about the fact that God's righteousness has been violated and it's necessary for God to judicially discipline, judicially punish those who have violated his righteousness. And when we have it expressed with this kind of vivid imagery, it's just expressing the fact that God's justice or his discipline is going to be severe. We have idioms that we use in English like that. Somebody goes to court and they've been let's say for the fifth time in the last year, uh, they have been given a traffic ticket and the judge looks at that record and he says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, fine you the most I can fine you. And somebody will say, well, the judge really threw the book at them. That's an act of, of anger and that's an act of wrath. But we don't mean that. We just mean that, that the full extent of the law or the punishment allowed by the law was applied in that particular case. We don't want judges who are emotional one way or the other. We want a judge who is objective and evil, evenly applying the law, and that's the way God is. So we have to get emotion completely out of the picture. So Judges 2.14 states it again in a different way. This is where it comes along and says, uh, literally, it says that Yahweh's nose burned. And the anger of the Lord, or Yahweh's nose burned, against Israel. Beca- why? Because he has violated the righteousness of God. And as a result of that, uh, he delivers them into the hands of plunderers and I'm translating it plunderers who plundered them because what, well, what, what it has in the New King James is plunderers who despoiled them. But the Hebrew word in both cases come from the same root. So it's better to connect them with English words that are cognates of each other, that are related to each other. And when it says he delivered them, uh, in the Hebrew, he gave them into. So it's this idea that God is giving them into uh, the hands of their enemies for those who would uh, plunder them, who would take all of their possessions and uh, their homes and their money and destroy their lifestyle, to take away their prosperity, take away their fertility, take away their pleasure. 
And he sold them. There's that word. It's used several times in the scripture to talk about those who are sold into slavery. And so it brings up that same imagery that they've enslaved themselves to the God of the nations, the God of the peoples around them, and now God is selling them into the hands of those people. And it has that idea of being enslaved by their enemies so that they could no longer stand before their enemies, just states that they could no longer fight. They couldn't defend themselves. They're just overwhelmed by their enemies. And then Judges 2.15 says, Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them. Now, there we have another anthropomorphism. It's not that God is literally taking his hand and swatting them down. It is that the hand represents that which executes something. It represents power. It represents ability to do something. And so when it says the hand, hands of, uh, uh, that he sold them into the hands of their enemies, excuse me, I misread that, into the hands of their enemies, it's talking about the power of their enemies. Now, their hands are involved, but it's really talking about their, their power. It's selling them into the authority of their enemies all around so that they could no longer uh, uh, stand before their enemies. And then verse 15, that's where I saw the phrase, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, literally for evil. So this is the power of the Lord against them for evil. As the Lord had said, well, did God warn them about this? Did they have some idea that maybe this would happen if they were disobedient? I think so. Let's finish the verse. As the Lord had sworn them, and they were really distressed. They were very upset because God actually did what he said he would do. Now, we can see this in some passages such as Leviticus 26, 16 to 20. This is part of the five uh, stages of divine discipline. I like the term stages because each one builds on the one before. And the first and second stages, are I've, I've picked up some verses from each of the first, uh, first two, and uh, two or three, and God says in verse 16, I also will do this to you. So it's doing something in addition to what was already done in the first stage. I will even appoint terror over you. So you're going to become terrorized by what happens. Wasting disease and fever. So it's going to affect you physically. It's going to affect your health. It will consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. Why? Because you're going to see your friends, your family, uh, your spouse die from some of these illnesses. You will sow your seed in vain. See, you're not going to have bountiful crops. Uh, however much you go and you worship the Baalim and the Asherah, you're not going to get any kind of benefit. Uh, you can sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. So even if it does produce crops, this is what happened with the Midianites in Judges 6 in the Gideon story. They would swoop in during harvest time and take everything uh, back to them and just barely leave enough for the Israelites to survive. And God says in verse 17, I will set my face against you. Another idiom that setting your face against him, somebody who's looking at you sternly and is going to uh, make a statement that you're not going to like and uh, come against you. So I will set my face against you and you shall be defeated 
by your enemies. doesn't say you might be. It says you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. You're not going to be able to have any kind of military victory because ultimately military victory has nothing to do with your technology. It has nothing to do with your training. It has everything to do with God's plan. That in this case, uh, if Israel was obedient to God, then God was going to give them the victory. He would confuse their enemies. And that's what happened in the conquest in the Battle of Jericho, later the Battle of Ai, after they messed up at the beginning, they lost because they had sin in the congregation in the, in the camp, and they had, had to deal with that. After that was dealt with, then they had victory. I will set my face against you. You'll be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. You're scared of your own shadow. Verse 18, and after all this, so this goes into the third stage, the third phase of divine discipline. If you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. Each stage is seven times more than the stage before, so it gets more and more intense. I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. It won't rain, no crops. This is what happens in uh, 1 Kings 17 when Elijah goes to Ahab and says, it's not going to rain again until I say it's okay for it to rain. And then he took off and went into hiding. Verse 20, and your strength shall be spent in vain. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much effort you put into it, your land will not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. And another verse is Deuteronomy uh, 2.15. And this is a verse that reminds us. It's talking about the, the uh, wilderness generation, how they disobeyed God. And so we see the same language being applied to the subsequent generations in the land as were applied to their great-great-grandfathers who disobeyed the Lord and had to be disciplined and wander uh, in, in the wilderness. Uh, so about that generation, Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 2.15, For indeed the hand of the Lord, see that's at talking about his power again, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the midst of the camp until they were consumed. And that referred back to one of those rebellions, like the rebellion of Korah, how God uh, took a stand against them, or at the base of Mount Sinai when the um, golden calf was worshipped and Moses was told to uh, kill all of those who were worshipping the golden calf. Verse 15 says, Whenever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. It's a fulfillment of what was said in Leviticus 26. And then we get to verse 16. Nevertheless, nevertheless, that indicates contrast. In spite of all their disobedience, in spite of all their failures, the Lord raised up judges. Notice there's no mention of their repenting. There's no mention of this crying out for deliverance here. Now that happens in several of the cycles with the judges, 
But when you get to the last cycle with Samson, nobody's turning to God and calling for deliverance. Nobody is turning back to God or repenting. That's what repenting means is turning to God. So the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. And that's grace. Grace in action. It's undeserved favor from God. God is doing this again and again. He delivered them uh, as an expression of His grace, not because of what they, uh, not because of what they did. So, His grace, His goodness, His mercy had no lasting consequences on the nation. That generation at first, they would go along, but they would quickly forget about what God had done for them. And next thing you know, they're like what we're going to be studying in Second Peter. They're like a dog returning to its vomit. They're just going back to their old sinful ways of doing things. But never, but um, that's verse 17. Yet they would not listen to their judges but they played the harlot. That just good old King James. The British like to use the word harlot. The Americans like the word whore. Uh, they're just using this language. They prostituted themselves. They're selling themselves into slavery to these false gods and false religions. And it's both a spiritual term because they're being unfaithful to God to whom they are covenanted but they're also physically engaged in all of the fertility rites at the at the uh, local temples. So they played the harlot, they prostituted themselves with other gods and bowed down to them, showing they're submissive to them, they're worshiping them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. Now the word fathers there isn't just talking about their immediate generation before them, it goes back to the generation of Joshua. And there have been a couple of generations actually before the first cycle uh, with Othniel. And so they, they've turned away from that. And uh, this reminds us again of what happened with the Israelites coming out of Egypt. And when they have, uh, when they t- talk Aaron into building the golden calf so that they can worship the golden calf. In Exodus 32, 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. This is God speaking. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And what God says in chapter 34, 13 through 16 is, but you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images For you shall worship no other God for the Lord, whose name is Jealous. And that's not jealous like we think of jealous. It it has to do with a more of a passion for loyalty. He is zealous for that. Zealous comes closer to the meaning, the root meaning of the word that is used there. Uh, If you're a sinner, then it turns into jealousy. But if you're not, it's just a passion for loyalty. Uh, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and prostitute yourselves with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invites you and you eat of his sacrifice, you take his daughters for your sons, and and so there's the warning against intermarriage, all of which uh, the Israelites were violating in the period of the judges. And so we come to verse 18, and when the Lord raised up judges for them, 
the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. So see, there we have another example. We've got the hand of their enemies, another figure of speech. We have God being gracious and delivering them, and nothing is said about their turning to the Lord. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppress them and harass them. And verse 19 goes on with this cycle. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted instantly like a dog going back to its vomit, that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. And the word there, idiom there in Hebrew, nor from their hard way. They have hardened their own hearts. That's the word. They have hardened their own hearts. It's, they've become stubbornly uh, committed to disobeying God. And the result is then the anger of the Lord, the, that is the nose of Yahweh burned and was hot against Israel. And he said, because of this, because this nation has tra- transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not heeded my voice. So what happens here is that they have violated the contract that God made with them, the covenant, the Mosaic law. And because they violated that, God is going to fulfill his obligation to the covenant, which is in the the cycles of discipline or the uh, stages or phases of discipline. Verse uh, 21 I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. So he's going to lead them to test them. That's what we see coming up in verse 22, so that through them I may test Israel. And that's what we'll look at next time. So I just want to hit a couple of slides here. This is their cycle. They go into apostasy. They they fall away from obeying God and worshiping God. And that leads to oppression. They become enslaved to these other gods, and then they become enslaved to the people who worship those gods. And then they whine and they moan and they complain about how bad everything is, and then God delivers them. And then they, after the deliverer dies, they just go right back into apostasy, and this is the pattern of their paganization. But we also see uh, how this deteriorates through the period of the judges. The first judge is Othniel, and he's followed by Ehud, and then Deborah and Barak, and Gideon, and Jephthah, and finally Samson. And it, each cycle gets worse as it goes downhill uh, to the end. So this is what we're going to look at t- next week. Through them, God says that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore, the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. So this chart summarizes what God does. First, there is the anger. That is God's judicial action against the Israelites. This leads to divine discipline, judgment on the nation. That leads to a change of mind on the part of the Israelites 
that leads, leads to dis, uh, deliverance, and then they reject God, and and they um, they reject God, and they just go go forward. Now, we think that this is pretty absurd that something like this is going to uh, take place. But always remember that God calls a sheep, and here is an illustration of it. Well, maybe we'll have to... It worked fine this afternoon. Oh, well. We'll get it next time. My computer's been acting up so much. I lost, oh, here, now, I lost 30 minutes Sunday morning just trying to get ready for church. Because, did it start? Okay, well, let me try it. Okay. Just remember, this is us. Keep watching. That's the cycle of Israel. like looking in the mirror. Let's close in prayer, and then David's going to come up, and he's going to talk about Pakistan. Father, thanks for this time that we have together. Thanks for what you have taught us in your word, and we pray that we might be responsive to what we need to be responsive to, recognizing we need to consistently walk in obedience to you and not be like the sheep that keeps jumping back into the ditch not be like the dog that returns to his vomit, not like Israel always enslaving themselves to idols, but we need to walk consistently with you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.